Welcome to It's Mercedes, honest conversations for freedom-minded women. I'm your host, Mercedes, founder of Libertas Sisters. In every episode, I invite a guest to discuss topics such as femininity, relationships, the culture war, self-reliance, politics, and freedom. And let's be honest, whatever else I'm in the mood for. So pop in those headphones, pour yourself a beverage, and settle in. Let's get this episode started. Is my microphone okay? Yeah, your microphone is good. I've done a few recordings with just ear pods, so... You know, as long as we can hear you, it is absolutely fine. Today, I want to welcome my guest, Julia Song. She is a, she's from Brazil, a writer, commentator, activist. She is a contributor to EV Magazine, uh, where she writes quite a bit about socialism, feminism, and kind of their symbiotic relationship. So, Julia, thank you so much for agreeing to join me today. Thanks for having me. Um, I did like to take a moment and maybe introduce yourself a little bit. I know that you have like a whole story, but you also have a great article where you share your story in Brazil and everything like that. So you don't have to go into any deep dive into that aspect. Um, I'll probably provide a link in the show notes so everybody can kind of read your backstory. But if you just want to give a general introduction. So um, basically... I was born in one of the most violent and poorest places in South America, and my family suffered political persecution, so it was uh, a little bit difficult for my mother to provide for us, so we had to deal with a lot of actual, you know, uh, having to fend for ourselves. I feel like a lot of it can be romanticized in the U.S., like socialism which is what uh, we were basically standing up against. Um, And also people think of like female, strong female characters that are incredibly badass, but in reality, they don't really know what that means and what it takes to become that type of person here in the U.S., I feel like a lot of it. They have, they see like a, like a media interpretation of it or kind of. It's like, a fantasy. Yeah. It's a fantasy. So they have this idea of like what it feels like to be empowered and what it feels like to be in control and, and to have, you know, all of these dreams about socialism, but they don't understand what comes with it because, you know, the, the basic thing against socialism you know, or the basic thing uh, within capitalism is that which is the system that is most natural to to us and has been for the longest time is that nothing comes for free. Everything is an exchange. So if you want to become that type of person that is, you know, uh, incredibly independent and self-reliant and et cetera, there is a giveaway. There's something you're going to give up. And that a lot of times is something that I don't think people should give up as part of themselves. I feel that it's sort of like a a disability, like a handicap, because yes, you become stronger in a way, but you also become weaker in other ways that you don't necessarily need to be pursuing. And same thing with socialism is, you know, there's there's a giveaway where people think, oh, I'm just going to receive all this free uh, resources, but you're going to have to give up a lot. And the, the trade-off isn't really, you know, great. 
it's basically a, a big, big scam. Yeah. Well, cause I mean, at least my vision or how I would see socialism is a lot of times it's romanticized in a way that if this is provided for me, if this is given to me, it frees me up for me to pursue X, Y, Z, or to do what I want, because I don't have to worry about, I don't know, healthcare or food on my table or, um, whatever programs that might be provided. It's like less stress. So they see it as more freedom, but then at the same time, it, it includes dependency. So, you know, you're, you're handing, you're putting control of your aspects of your life in somebody else's hands. Now you mentioned you know, why you were kind of explaining that about self-reliance, how you feel, I don't know if I didn't quite understand it, but you felt that self-reliance also requires some giving up or some, you know, like that you're, um, I wasn't really a hundred percent sure, like what you meant by that. So what I meant is that, um, when you, when you look into feminism, they have all this strong female, uh, stereotypes. And if you think about it, for example, let's, let's talk about my mom. My mom will be the perfect feminist, uh, hero. She was a single mother of two and she had a degree in business administration and she was also a lawyer. So she was working to provide for her two children in a very difficult environment. So, you know, the, the the typical hero, whatever. But when you come to actually look at it, her situation, the fact that she didn't have a partner, whenever okay. things went down, they went down very quickly. She felt like she didn't need anyone. She didn't need no man. But then at the same time, when we became homeless, she wasn't able to provide for the family. It was just us. There was nobody to have that sort of support system. And it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to develop healthy relationships. It's okay to have a partner that you can rely on. Uh, so a lot of, uh, you know, she focused on her career and me and my brother, we grew up sort of like thinking that we were left on our own. Uh, she had a lot of stress. She had a lot of headaches all the time, migraines, and she didn't really uh, get to interact with us. You were talking more about in the sense of having a partner or having some type of support system that a lot of times, I mean, in feminism, you, um, if you use it or look at it strictly in the scope of feminism, self-reliance is like, I can do my own thing. I can take care of myself. I don't need a man. It's usually typically like in that mentality. Is that what kind of, not saying that that was your mother's mentality, but that's just kind of in general you know, um, single woman on her own, doing her thing, earning her money and providing when, I mean, typically it doesn't matter. I, it, it's my belief that we are meant to have partnership in order to relieve that, that load and that stress. Is, is that kind of where you were going with that? It was absolutely her, um, mentality. She was very proud to proud trust for help. But at the same time, uh, the children were suffering. Uh, we didn't have that type of motherly relationship. We didn't have a father figure growing up. We didn't have any sort of support system. So uh, when, when you think about feminism in the sense of like the strong uh, 
independent stereotype, you sort of um, think of it as, as an illusion that doesn't really include things like how would your kids actually feel? Are you going to have time to go to their school meetings? Are you going to have time to go to their games? Are you going to have time to check their homework? Uh, are you going to have time to figure out uh, early signs of disease or mental illness or things that they're struggling with? Or maybe if there's somebody who's talking to them online, are you going to have the ability to do that? Are you going to have the ability to, you know, make sure that they're eating healthy meals? Are you going to have the ability to make sure that you're eating healthy meals, that you're getting enough sleep, that you're taking care of yourself, that you're staying healthy? So um, I, I feel like a lot of it is just a big, um, a big illusion. So when it comes to self-reliant, I meant sort of like, I don't need a man, but also yeah. in, in a situation of physical uh, danger. So when people think of like the the female superheroes or the female, the, the badass female, uh, you know, role models on TV where they always want to be uh, like the, the Black Widow from Avengers, whatever, right? Everybody loves that. Yeah. <laughs> but in reality, if you would would have known what it takes to become that type of person, you probably wouldn't necessarily be willing to trade off. Yeah, all that sacrifice that you have to give in order to be this badass chick or whatever, or be the provider, or be the, you know, what whatever caricature, whatever that you want it to, that you're envisioning the amount of work and sacrifice that it takes to get there not most people are willing to do that. And honestly, I, I mean, I believe that we're not necessarily meant to do that. We're not meant to do that. We are meant to be um, in partnerships and be together. And the only reason I asked you to kind of clarify what you meant about self-reliance is that I use that term very often for myself, but I use it more to define myself as being self-reliant from the government, from large institutions, that me and my husband together are doing everything possible where we are able to, you know, have food security, have a roof over our heads, just like those bare necessities and not being dependent on the government. Because if we are, then we're handing over control on aspects of our life over to the government. But, you know, when you clarify and you talk about it, it's also an aspect of like this feminist idea of I'm on my own and then romanticizing of, you know, being the boss babe, badass chick or whatever. It's my belief that we're not really designed men or women. I don't really believe that we're designed to be that way, that we're designed to be on our own on top of having children by ourselves. And in that sense, I think a lot of times when you do have that structure of a woman alone with her children, you do need support. And then a lot of times that support is opened up and has welcomed the government in. So with your experience of being raised with a single mother and in a country where there was a lot of socialist systems, have you ever thought about whether feminism is because right now, like the ideas of socialism seem to be brewing and becoming more popular here in the United States. But there's no question that along with that, back in the past, the feminist movement had a big force here in the United States. 
Do you think there is any possibility that feminism is a contributor to opening up or being okay with the idea of socialism here in the United States? Not that it's the only thing, but like a contributing factor. Yeah, I think it's part of the same type of ideology, the same part of ideology that doesn't consider the consequences of your actions, that thinks that everything is going to be perfect, that everything is going to be, you know, amazing. Like, for example, let's look at, at, at you know, I don't, I, I don't know why I'm talking, bringing up superheroes so much, but if you think about, for example, Batman, how did he become Batman? He had to endure a lot of trauma, losing his parents, all, all those different and difficult things to become who he is at that point. So if you think about it from, from the perspective of, you know, you see, you see how he is today and you think, oh my God, this is awesome. But if you take a look, if there was just a movie about his past, uh, including nothing but the years and years of therapy that he went to, all the, the times that he was crying under his bed, it, people wouldn't watch that because people don't like to see the bad side of things. You just like to see the, the pretty side of things, uh-huh. right? Um, and, and so the, the same thing with feminism and socialism, they do. They don't consider the realities of it. And a lot of the times uh, they they think that those uh, ideas of how they want the future to be justify certain actions that they may take today. So, for example, in order for us to have a a big, beautiful, united society in the future, we're going to have to start taking some measures today, whatever those measures are, whether it is taking assets from people because people don't know how to invest their own assets or they don't know how to take care of their own assets, whether it is taking your kids away because you're putting different ideas in their heads and, and, and you, you're trying to homeschool them when we want them to learn something else, maybe. And, and so it sort of like justifies it because of that idea of the future. But what you're putting people through never actually justifies it. Right. Um, I, I think 100 uh, percent Batman will probably prefer to have his parents yeah. back than, <laughs> you know, put on a, a leather suit. So to me, it's, it's like you're causing a lot of hurt and a lot of pain for people today. Uh, you're putting these ideas in people's heads. You're making them seem so beautiful, but they're actually just ruining people's lives for a, a utopia, something that may or may not happen in the future usually doesn't yeah, happen. Yeah, because the, the concept is a lot of times is like, if we would just all do this, like this same thing for everyone and everybody kind of participated in the same program, same idea, then we would ultimately have a utopia. And I see, first of all, you you can't see into the future. So you don't know what you will ultimately have. And also I find that a lot of times there's just like a complete disregard of human nature as if all of a sudden we're all going to be like robots and be like, yeah, I'm down with this and everything's going to be cool. Yeah. Like my mom, she was always thinking about her career and then you add two kids to it. You add bills, you add things like, you know, just rest time, uh, meals, keeping up with her kids, et cetera. The day only has 24 hours. And so uh, are you are you not going to sleep? Are you not going to work? Are you not going to take? So it's it's sort of like it goes against logic. It goes against basic logic, against basic human nature. It's just it, it sells people on a lie that 
makes them more vulnerable and more dependent on the government. And then at that point, it's like, you know, we 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 own you. And you become is sort of the the utopia of it is a very um dangerous aspect because it's sort of like a cult. It make pe- it makes people go all the way. And even if as things are going bad, they don't realize that it's going bad. They try to justify it. So in the Soviet Union, when they were putting people into camps, those people were trying, they were doing that, but they were justifying it. They're justifying, oh, I'm doing this because I'm, try- I'm going to help everybody else. I'm doing this. I'm, I'm putting a bullet in this person's head because of, and so, so you know, you're, you're trying to justify bad actions because you're stuck to that ideology so bad that you, you it's, it's sort of brainwashing you. And that's how they connect these two ideologies. So you, I mean, I didn't even, it wasn't until I started reading some of your pieces and watching some interviews and stuff like that, that you had done that I ever really thought of Brazil having a socialist um, aspect to it. Like I knew Brazil is a very large, I think it's the largest South, um, South American country. Um, and that there was a great deal of poverty, but my background is I'm Puerto Rican and I've lived here in the United States. So like, that's the extent that like I'm Latin, but you know, my knowledge, there's a, like a lot, a lot of people in the United States don't understand like how many Latin countries there are and how we're all like so different. So I didn't really know that, or I had never really associated that there had been a I don't know if an infiltration of socialism is a fair uh, way to present it Um, because correct me if I'm wrong, but they're not like a socialist country. It's that there has been uh, socialist programs put in or what some people would claim to be socialist programs put in that have had um, negative effects to the economy and to uh, the country. Is that fair? No, uh, it was fully blown socialism. So what happened was uh, a, a little bit of a history uh, class, if anybody cares about it. It's like a, one of those dumb subjects. Not dumb, but like yeah. stuff that people really don't care about. Um, when it comes to like knowing what's going on, um, a, a big part of it, it's dependent on the media. So for example, if I ask you what's going on with Nicaragua, mm-hmm. with Daniel Ortega, you may not know, a lot of people in America may not know that there's a dictatorship going on, that there's a lot of people dying in Nicaragua right now. But what happened was uh, Brazil was undergoing a lot of political uh, changes. There was a lot of uh, difficulty with the presidential office. Uh, presidents were coming in and out. There was a lot of uh, uh, confusion as to what actually was like who was on. president essentially like there was a lot of confusion it's like who's even president yeah sort of like that like the the guy that was supposed to take it nobody actually liked him everybody hated it so it, there was a lot of turmoil around the presidency at the same time the soviet union was establishing themselves in you know that part of mm-hmm. russia they were putting a lot of money towards indoctrinating uh people in brazil and in, in latin american countries you see that in colombia you see that in venezuela you see that in Bolivia with some of their yeah. leaders, 
So they, they were funding these communist cells around the world because uh, strategically, Brazil was uh, in, in a great geographic position to allow them to, you know, they, they wanted to become partners, basically. And so they started funding this, this uh, communist cells and things like that. But at the time that there was a big turmoil in, in the presidency, the army thought, hey, there's an actual chance that these communists who were arming themselves are going to attempt a coup to take over the presidency, and we're not going to allow that. So what happened was that the military took over the government, and it wasn't a coup. It was basically um, they, they had elections, but you had to vote for somebody who was in the military. Um, but it wasn't necessarily... So all the candidates were military? Yeah. Okay. So to make sure that the communists were in power. Then what happened next was a big, big uh, civil war of kinds of sorts between the communists and the, the military and the traditionalists in Brazil. Eventually, the military was like, all right, I think we sort of uh, tired of it and we sort of, the, the communist threat went away. So we're giving the, the executive office back to, you know, everybody else wants to run anybody else wants to run. the people like you know to do like a regular election like yeah. we're done with martial law like here i guess you would call it an equivalent of martial law or whatever except you voted somebody in um mm-hmm. what is i guess that would be a democratic martial law i don't know <laughs> right um <laughs> and now they're opening it up to the people to vote so a, a lot of people refer to it as a military dictatorship but it really mm-hmm. wasn't a dictatorship because we had no presidents all the time. But um, basically, so they, they gave it up. Then next came a centrist type of uh, president. And that president was extremely corrupt. He was impeached. He was investigated for corruption. So again, turmoil. And we had come from the a big, you know, 20 years or so of traditionalist governing us, the military. And then we had this guy who was a centrist who was no good. So then the Congress party, now they didn't have any sort of- um, Like opposition. And then the previous two have done not so great. So it's like, well, if these two are so bad and there's nobody to oppose, maybe you guys are okay kind of situation. Yeah, so they created the, the socialist party. And so we would have the socialist party, the socialist party of Brazil, we started having several different socialist parties who were basically just, you know, workers party, etc. And they had pretty much, you know, as, as radical of a socialist agenda as, as you could get. And they got in power and took them about 20 years to leave power. They weren't necessarily wanting to leave. Uh, they bankrupted the country and we had to sort of yank them out of power. And Everything that you see here in the U.S. that concerns people on the right wing, I guess, aspect of it, uh, spectrum of it, was something that we wished hadn't happened in Brazil, but it did. And for example, people, um, the, 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 the socialist president Lula at the time, he used some of his influence to try to, and there's public school indoctrination, 
there's a huge amounts of corruption, huge amounts of uh, people holding on to power and just not letting go. So and did they also like take possession, like ownership of, um, you know, the economy essentially, or yeah. did people own businesses or were they able to do that? Or was it like, maybe you kind of do like in Cuba, for example, it's like you have a restaurant, but it's basically the state's restaurant because you have to give them pretty much all of your money. <laughs> it wasn't, so it wasn't necessarily like that, but the way it was is that, uh, for example, the party that was in 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 power was the Workers' Party, and so if I wanted to open a business, which is what my mother tried to do when she became unemployable, because everybody was pretty much just working for the government, there was no other big employer that could people could find jobs with. It was just the government. Um, so she couldn't really work for the government anymore because she had been the attorney for the opposition party. So they kind of blacklisted her. So she tried to open up her own business. And what happens is that there's so much regulation, so much regulation that she wasn't able to keep her doors open. There's a lot of taxes, a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of permits to the point where it's basically, you know, not feasible to have a business. And then you're going back to depending on the government. So that's sort of what they did. When it comes to firearms, it's the same thing. If you look at Brazil, they say that Brazil uh, is a country that allows ownership of firearms. Sure, it does. But there's so much, so much, so much regulation that around it that by the time you actually manage to get a firearm, um, you're, it's, it's unheard of. It's really unheard of. It's so they make it so challenging and so difficult that you virtually can't get one, which is actually what I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, there's a Supreme Court case right now um, oh, with the issue in New York, because New York, the claim is, is that they make it so difficult for you to possess a firearm for personal defense that it's essentially restricting their Second Amendment right, which, you know, thank goodness we even can argue that because when a country doesn't have that sort of thing, you don't even have anything to argue for because you don't have the protection doesn't even exist. So yeah, yeah, it's they they make it um they make it physically or, or like financially, physically, bureaucratically impossible to have any freedom that doesn't depend on the government. So you want to be safe, you gotta depend on the police, you gotta depend on the government. For that, you're gonna need to give us money. You wanna have jobs, you gotta work for the government. You gotta so it's sort of like everything revolves around the government and the, the country that money wasn't getting back to the people. So the inflation, the corruption, et cetera, the wages were frozen, but the prices of goods kept rising up. Uh, the police, of course, wasn't, a lot of the times they weren't even getting paid. Which means they don't want to do their job, which means they don't want to protect the people because they're not even being paid for their job. They would stop working or they would get paid by drug dealers. Yeah. So, you know, it's sort of like to look the other way. And sort of, it, it became complete chaos. So I feel like socialism, it can happen in different ways in different countries. People think America is never going to be a socialist country. It doesn't have to be like China. It doesn't have to be like Venezuela or Cuba. It can be like Brazil. It can be like other countries in which, you know, it happens in a different manner, in a more subtle manner. But it's just as debilitating and crippling to the nation. And I think that happens a lot here because 
our direct association with socialism, communism is direct with Russia, with, you know, you think about the 80s. I mean, I'm I'm a child of the 80s. I was growing up during the Reagan administration. You know what I mean? That was like peak uh, towards the end of like the fight against communism and getting rid of the Red Scourge and the fall of the Berlin Wall. Like that is our association with it, which is a very... I don't want to say purist because there's a, a lot of debate about, well, it wasn't really communist or it wasn't really socialist because if it was, it would have been like this again, almost like believing that I, I, I think a lot of times that argument happens because believe people have this utopian view of socialism and communism, and then also don't account for human nature as if someone who participates in the system is above corruption. Clearly, I mean, no human being is above corruption. And and it's my belief that socialism and communism, which are cousins, foster corruption because people in their nature want to advance. They want to do better. They want, and the only way they can do it is by basically screwing the people because the government is the people, you know what I mean? The country is the people. There's nobody else to screw. It's not like in a capitalist system, if you're making all this money and you start mistreating your customers and your employees and screwing them and stuff like that, you eventually get put out of business. It might take a while, but you get put out of business. So I was looking up Brazil and like a little bit of the history of Brazil and, and seeing like, is, you know, you Google, is Brazil socialist? And then you get like these forums that are like, no, it's not. I wish it was. They do this, this, and that. And I'm just kind of like, it, it's again, that romanticizing of what it could be. So I like that you shared how socialism is not a binary concept. Like it can take form and it can affect a country in different ways. So do you yeah. do you see like, you know, having your experience in Brazil and what happened in Brazil and what you saw happen in Brazil, like parallels with what is happening here in the United States over the last like 10 years and most recently? So one of the things that I noticed too, when I was, you know, I grew up there, I handled, you know, I, I watched the news every day. I, I, I seen things, I, I saw the things that were going on. So when I came over here, I decided to Google some of these events, some of these facts. And a lot of what I saw, especially, you know, people, people don't go to page 10 of Google. They go to the oh. first, the second, the third. And a lot of it is uh, rooters is, uh, you know, if you think about it from a, an indoctrination point of view, where you have the media, where you have all of that, uh, uh, even big tech censorship, I don't know if it's a part of it or if it's sort of just like the algorithm work. You know, these people are paying to get put on the first pages and or, or they have a lot of views and then they, they end up in the first pages. Yeah, they have authority and Google likes them. So they go up to the front. Yeah. And so a lot of those were talking about things that was pretty much not true, was a, an article written by somebody who probably never even stepped foot in Brazil talking about all kinds of romanticizing stuff regarding socialism when people are actually dying. In fact, my hometown has violence levels higher than war zones, higher than, you know, war zones in the Middle East. If you look at, for example, I've been to the Middle East, and if you think of places like Haiti, 
Haiti is in many ways, many ways, much more, much more uh, dangerous to you and to anyone than the Middle East. So you have levels of violence that aren't even uh, uh, believable and people wouldn't even talk about it. So what, so for example, what the government does is that it tries to embezzle the numbers. It tries to make things so that it appears to be in, in good, um, in good faith. It appears. So it does things like, for example, one of the Brazil's, um, programs was that it, the artists would ask for money from the government to do their projects. So they didn't necessarily have to put their own money. They didn't have to find investors. They didn't have to find anything. They would just submit that proposal to the government. They'll get millions and they wouldn't have to pay back. So if for, and you'll get that um, if, if you were a big artist. So they gained the favor of people who influenced their fans, et cetera. So let's say I'm a, I'm a big singer and I want to write a book and the book turns out to be a flop. Nobody likes it. It's okay because I already made millions of it. I got it from the government. So I don't have to pay back. I don't have to do anything. So, so it's not through like merit. It's not through talent. It's the connections that you have in the government. Yeah. And like, I want to create this painting. Let me get this money and make this painting. Now, was there any kind of, was anybody dictated or told, not dictated, but kind of like, or maybe dictated, like told what to write, what to paint, what kind of, you know what I mean? If they got that kind of government funding. So um, I'm not exactly sure what the, the, the contract said, but basically it, it sort of like they just wouldn't approve people who were part of the opposition. They okay. just wouldn't give uh, any sort of, they just wouldn't like with the Google thing. Uh, the first few pages is just not uh, something that's opposition. There is no actual unbiased news because the government would give like what recently in the, the White House uh, and Twitter, they banned Newsmax uh, journalists, White House correspondent, uh, Emerald Robinson. And so there is no opposition anymore. All the, the, the media outlets, they're there. They agree with each other. So they only let people in who agree with them. Um, so basically, to, to go back to your point of the parallels of socialism there and, and here, um, it, I feel like it ends up in the same way. It ends up with poverty. It ends up with misery. It ends up with people losing their rights. But it, it doesn't just happen, happen like that at, in the end, like you just wake up one day and you're in a, a, a socialist regime or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's like gradual, right? It's a slow creep. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. so um, think of it as like communism. Let's let's put that aside. But socialism yeah. is a, a a type of government in which you give up a lot of your you know personal freedoms and personal properties for to the government, and the government allocates that equally through the people, throughout the people. That's not really what happens, right? We have all of our public services are crap. They're not supporting people. A public education is terrible. Anything that the government is actually involved in is terrible. They have trillions of dollars in, in, in debt. They have trillions of dollars. You know, 
it's to me, it's like it's a huge operation that's not actually benefiting people very much. And that's sort of what socialism is, is you take power and money and freedom from people and you tell them you're going to get this back, but you really don't. And I mean, you get back something. And I think that's the thing because it depends on the personality, but people have a tendency not to default or think of the worst possible scenario. So if I give you my money and you have now relinquished the responsibility you know, or take it like the responsibility of me having to worry about my health care. You know what I mean? I'm okay. But the problem is, is that you've given money to someone who has not earned it, who then doesn't really have any attachment to it. So therefore they're not going to be diligent or good stewards of that money. They're going to spend it and then if they have friends, they're probably going to, or family, they're probably going to toss it over to them because that is their interests. And so, yeah, maybe you get it back with some kind of healthcare, but what is the quality of that healthcare is the issue. Not to mention that you're, you're taking away really any incentive for people to create or um, advance in treatments because they're not going to gain any reward for it because like the government has set a specific price on how much you can earn in order to control the, the cost. So yeah, you get something back, but it's never going to be as good as you think it is. You're going to have to give something up, not to mention how many people are going to be using it. Yeah. If you think of like, if I'm giving up all that money to the government in exchange for believing that they will provide me with a service, I'm basically giving away my financial power, my purchase power. And that's a big part of my freedom, right? Uh, a part of my freedom is to be able to choose who will be my healthcare provider, et cetera. But I'm giving them up to, that up to the government because I believe that they can do a better job at it than me, that they can do a better research, that they can get better prices, et cetera. I'm giving all that power to somebody. And even if we had somebody great in the in the White House, we had the, the you know, Mahatma Gandhi of, of the United States. Who's to say that four years from now, we're not going to have somebody in the White House that's going to use all that money and all that power for very evil purposes? Who's to say? Now they have given up that freedom, that power to the government, it can't be used against you. You're not going to have Mahatma Gandhi in that White House forever. If you do, it's a dictatorship, right? And yeah. so that's how they, they sort of like go down the path of dictatorship because they're like, oh, we don't want this power to go down to the wrong hand. So we're going to keep it for now. Um, so it's, it's, it's a slippery slope where maybe someday some very evil person is going to take over the White House. And now they have all this money. Now they have all this power. And you don't. They're going to use it against you. So uh, to me, yeah, it's, like life isn't a constant. Like there's yeah. this idea that, well, if I do this program, then that's exactly what it's going to be. And it's going to be, life isn't a constant thing. It's a fantasy. It's, it's just like <laughs> not reality. These people are out of their minds. I mean, if you have all this power, if you have all this money, why why would you ever let go? And, and a lot of it also, even if this person is, uh, you know, a, a, a good person in, in their hearts, they may be misguided for a lot of, through a lot of, uh, you know, projects and a lot of their, their mindsets. And so they may be putting a lot of effort into different things. They may be thinking, 
oh, you know what, in order for us to better society, we're going to need to imprison all these domestic terrorists who are out posting bad things on Twitter. If we're going to have to, you know, uh, publicly execute people who are trying to say that their kids should not be learning this critical race theory. So it, it's sort of like a lot of it people are doing, they think that they're doing good, but they're not. And they don't, they don't see it. I mean, that is dangerous in the sense of like, you know, the the road to hell is paved with good intentions, I believe is the saying. So you're like, well, I'm doing it for the greater good or, you know, just, you know, if I, if I do this one more thing, like it'll be better. And that's a dangerous thing. But also what's very dangerous right now um, for me personally is ambivalence is kind of like disconnection, uh, not wanting to confront, not wanting to push back because we have definitely, I believe, entered into a period of a, of a cultural war, you know, because here in the United States, it's about holding on to the values of freedom and independence and, and, you know, being able to speak your mind, like all of these core values, which are instilled in our constitution. But we've, we've been so privileged, you know, and that's just a fact in, in the life here in the United States that we have this illusion that things that you just described could never happen. They're happening already. I mean, the things are, have already been in motion. When you think about all the stuff that's related to the pandemic, how can somebody tell me to close down my business? How can somebody tell me to not go outside and get locked down in my own house and not even go outside for exercise? How can somebody tell me this? How can somebody tell me that? How can somebody tell me to inject a vaccine into my body that I don't want to? How can somebody, you know, all of these things that you think, how can they do that? It has been in, in the process of doing for a long time, for a very long time, we're just not paying attention. It's like the, I think that they say here, the frog in the boiling water. Yeah, or, it's like so, the slow boil. So the the frog's in water and it's coming to a slow boil. Yeah, it, it goes from that point where the water is not, nothing is happening to it's boiling, like in, in you know, in the blink of an eye. And so you want to try to avoid boiling alive by realizing, hey, this water is getting hotter and hotter and hotter. It's getting more uncomfortable and, and getting out of it. But people are just, they're, they're not seeing the leading signs. They're thinking that this can never happen in the USA. And so a lot of people got shell-shocked with some of the restrictions that came about into their lives after this pandemic. And after, you know, that's a lot of it has been put in place for a long time. Uh, local you know locally with all these laws how can they do this they can because they voted on this law a long time ago and you didn't care you yeah. didn't pay attention to it so now they're using it they're amassing all this power little by little and when it hits you in the face it's gonna knock you out so it's it's sort of like it's basically my whole activism here in the u.s is like guys this is dangerous this is a slippery slope this is what gonna what's gonna happen and it happens every time. It's not because I can't see the future or I, I'm like a psychic. I've just seen it. I've seen it happen before. I, it's the exact same thing. It's the same playbook. It The results in different countries are a little bit different because it depends on the population. There's different cultures. There's different yeah. cultures. There's different things that you'll, they'll, they'll take different shapes, different things that you'll accept. But the, the, the result is just, you know, it, it's bad. The U.S. is going to be different than China because people in the U.S. are allowed to, let's say, have weapons. 
So it's going to maybe be a little bit slower because if you try to go too fast at people, they might fight back. So you want to try to get people one by one. You want to try to, in that clause, that say that if, if you don't agree with the government, then you're a domestic terrorist. So they want to make you disarmed. They want to make you, you know, like that thing where parents who go to the school board meetings are to be considered a domestic terrorist, whatever. Yeah, the letter from uh, from the memo from uh, the AG uh, Merrick after the school board, the National um, Association of, I think uh, the National School Board Association wrote to Biden actually requesting it. And they had to back off of that eventually because people got pissed, like come mess with people's kids and see what happens. They had to back off now. Yeah. (laughs) Two years from now, they're still going to be pushing that in a way that they are probably lobbying for it. They're probably putting money into candidates to run for office. They have that kind of mentality. So you just don't know what's happening in the background. And when it does happen, it's going to hit you in the face. So it's, it's, I think it's very important for people to realize the, the realities of all these, these false illusions that they fall for. You know, if you want to be a feminist, you're going to have to give up on having a family or on having kids. One of the most beautiful things that happen to, to a, a, a woman or a person is to have a family. You're going to be all alone. You're going to be, you know, have, going to have a career that if you die tomorrow, they're going to replace it the next day. There's going yeah. to be a job opening the next day. And so what are you really building? Who are you really, who are you trying to impress? What are you really trying to show? Well, and I, and that, that you just said right there, it makes me think, it just made me have that thought that, you know, for me, I don't currently have children, I don't, but I have a, I have a lot of friends that have children and I have a great love and appreciation for children because I know that what is happening now is going to affect them in the future. But when you grow up with a mindset or when you, when you accept an ideology such as feminism which is a very self-reflective, selfish ideology. It's about what I can do, what satisfies me, what makes me feel successful, my truth, all that kind of BS. Like when you are in that mindset, I think it opens up your mind and your heart to ideas like socialism because you are no longer having to invest in the future because you don't have children. You don't, you aren't thinking outside of yourself. You're thinking about what can be provided to you. Yeah, you want life to be easier and you want to be provided for and you want to, you know, you, you don't want to have to worry about shopping for healthcare. You don't want to have to worry. It's 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 sort of like and but you also want to compensate in a way. You think that you're doing the good thing, but you also don't want to do the research. You also don't want to look into it. You just want to feel good about yourself. You just want to feel and it's the, the whole thing with feminism. I you know, I have uh, a career and I know very well that, you know, what my priorities are and what I'm going to have to give up and how am I going to juggle everything as I decide to have, you know, children, et cetera. Um, but I know what I have to give up now. I know the family time that I have to give up now. I know. So I, I used to work for this big, big company and there was this you know, uh, women leadership group, whatever that I joined. And one of the women was uh, extremely high up in the company. She was as high as you can go. And so I asked her, I told her, you know, I'm young. I'd like to have children one day. I know you, you do have a couple of children, but you also are very successful. You're very high up. How do you manage 
to take care of children, your children and to also succeed in your career. And she said, I don't. She had to give up. She had to give up one thing for the other. Yeah. And she had no excuse for it. She did just admit that she didn't, you know, she didn't have time for her, her children. They basically had to raise themselves because she chose the career. And she was like, I, I, I don't have nothing to say. It is what it is. I, I, I couldn't do both at the same time. And you're only one person. It's okay to ask for help. You don't have to be, you know, this, this badass person. Like, uh, I believe every person should be able to know how to rely on themselves a little bit. And that's fine. But for you to become, you know, this, this Hollywood uh, stereotype type of, you know, badass woman, there's a lot of things that are going to ha- need to happen to change your mindset, to basically damage your soul in order for you to actually become that person. Uh, so, you know, like like for an athlete, we turn on, the, turn on the TV and we watch the Olympics and we see them do that big show. We don't know all the thousands of hours that they've spent, all the injuries, all the things that they had to give up, all the trauma, you know, those, those women, those gymnasts. Yeah. And I think, I think as women, we just need to, cause I've always, and I say this to my girlfriends and, um, I run a, a women's community and we have these discussions and, you know, the point here is as women and at the core of, you know, the original feminist movement was like for women to be able to do what they want to do. If they want to work, that they can work. If they want to stay home, that they should be able to stay home. And right now there's this mentality, you know, sometimes that if you're staying home, then you're not really contributing to society or it's kind of looked down upon. Um, But then at the same time, there are women who choose to stay home and then turn their nose at women that decide to work because, well, you know, how, and especially if they have kids and it's like, well, how can you not want to be with your kids all the time? And I really think it's unfair. I, I, of course I have a preference. Like I think a two person household is the best for children and that for children to have somebody at home. But at the same time, like it is not for me to dictate to women what they should do. What we do need women to understand is that regardless of which you choose, you're going to have to give something up. And the lie that we've been told for so long is that we can do both or we can have it all. And that's just not true. And I think it's really, you know, disingenuous, unfair and stressful to kind of, you know, follow into that narrative of like, I could do everything and I can have it all. Like, it's ridiculous. Yeah, people just forget about the human nature in all these different scenarios. They forget about, human nature in feminism, they forget about it in socialism. They just, you know, they, they, they don't think of it until it happens. And they're like, oh my God, uh, what do I do now? Like now I'm stuck here uh, working two jobs, have two kids, have to cook when I get home, have to, you know, go to college online. Like you, ha- you have all these different things that you didn't necessarily think of. And I think prevention is the best tool in, in a lot of things in life. Um, so if you can think ahead of some of these things and consider human nature and consider, you know, reality, just basic reality, then you understand that all, a lot of these ideologies are just a trap. 
made for you to just, you know, fall into and, and, and become very unhappy with yourself and more controllable. Yeah. Well, I'm going to wrap us up because we've been talking for about an hour, but um, I wanted to see if there's anything else that you wanted to maybe advise or share. My hope is when someone hears this, that at some point there will be someone that will listen to this and be curious about the conversation and maybe not be fully aware of, of the cultural war or battle that we're facing right now and how socialism and these ideas are, are creeping in. And maybe they're uncomfortable with vocalizing it or don't even know what to do about it. If someone were to ask you that question, you know, what should I do? What should I say? Like, how did you do it? Because a lot of times when you speak up right now, we're in an environment where it can be very hostile. Like, do you have any words of encouragement that you'd like to share before we close up? Yeah. Um, don't be afraid to be human. Don't be afraid to be vulnerable. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to take things one step at a time. Uh, you know, everybody feels overwhelmed. Everybody feels afraid, but we just move forward either way. Um, having the political persecution of my family at home, I had to think about, do, am I ready to possibly undergo this again? And, and I'm afraid. I, I, of course, I think about it all the time. But I just decided to press on anyway, because I have a support system around me, because I know that if I fall, if I have questions, if I have moments of doubt, that I have people that can be there for me. So don't be afraid to just be human. Think, you know, you're not perfect. Pride is going to be your downfall. Think about, you know, all the ways in which your own actions were the what were what caused your your current situation. How can you change that? By working on yourself, by allowing yourself to understand that you can make mistakes, forgive yourself, and just, you know, life is not a race. You're not Batman. Just, you know, every, every day, take it a little by little. Sometimes it, if you just do just a little, uh, it's, it's good enough. You don't have to, you know, be 100 miles an hour. Just know where you're going. And don't allow yourself to be bullied. Well, that's awesome. I thank you so much, Julia. I really appreciate that you shared your story and people can learn a little bit more about Brazil. And, you know, we have a tendency to let our guards down and think that things can never happen here because we just have one picture and one image of what socialism and oppression uh, looks like. So I think it was really good and important that you were able to share that story. If anybody wants to find you or follow you, where can they find you? So I'm everywhere on real, my handle everywhere is Real Julia Song. So if you go into an app and you type Real Julia Song and I'm not there, it's because I'm not in that app. But I use Twitter, Telegram and Carbon a lot and even Gab. So if you go on this Carbon, Twitter and Gab are social media platforms. Um, Telegram is sort of like here and there. It's, it's in between. Um, you know, but I do have the, the comment section available so people can interact with each other. They can interact with me a little bit. So if you go onto this four um, platforms, you'll be able to find me and have some of these conversations and, and get a lot of my content, my articles that I write. You'll be, uh, 
those will be accessible to you. So yeah, that's about and I'll it. be sure to uh, include all of those in the link in the bio, in the bio, <laughs> in, in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much again, Julia, for hanging out with us. And um, you are welcome back anytime. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to It's Miss Sadie, honest conversations for freedom-minded women. You can find the show notes for this episode at itsmissadie.com. And if you're loving the podcast, I would be so honored if you would go ahead and hit that subscribe button and leave me a five-star review. And if you would like to have conversations like this with other freedom-minded women, visit libertasisters.com, a community of women founded on the values of femininity, self-reliance, and freedom. You can also connect with me on Instagram at itsmissadie or join my email list. Until next time, stay free and stay honest.